Hey y'all, it's road trip season, and because I'm super excited about that, we're going to take a drive through the history of how cars have affected Black America. Because though it's very clear that cars changed everything, what is significantly less clear is how cars provided a unique sense of both freedom and danger for Black Americans. For many reasons, one of the big ones being the long history of restricting Black mobility in America both before the car and as Black Americans were starting to buy and drive them. And the car is relevant to so many aspects of Black history in the 20th century. Along the way, we'll get into the historic relationship between Black Americans and the police. We'll get into the civil rights movement. We'll discuss the Green Book and the rise and fall of Black businesses that popped up to cater to Black travelers who weren't welcome in other places. And we'll even roll through the topic of sundown towns. It's pretty exciting stuff, y'all. My guest on this little excursion is Dr. Gretchen Soren, who teaches at Cooperstown, New York, and is author of the book Driving While Black, African-American Travel and the Road to Civil Rights. Thank you so much for coming on my show, Professor. Thank you for having me. Now, to do the story of the intersection between Black Americans and cars in America, your book starts with the long history of restricting Black mobility in America that goes all the way back to slavery. So let's start there with the long view of... Black mobility history? Well, even though I'm a 20th century historian, as I started looking at the automobile, I realized that this story was much bigger than just the automobile, and that I really had to think about Black mobility and how African Americans were restricted from movement. And the more I looked at it, I went back to the Jim Crow era, I went back to Reconstruction, and I realized that the story had to begin with slavery. So from the moment African-Americans came on the shores of the New World, movement was restricted. If you were an enslaved African-American, you had to have a pass. And that pass could be made as paper, or there were little, um, in Charleston, for example, there were little metal tags that you had to wear if you were away from your plantation. Even free Blacks had to carry papers to prove that they were free. Otherwise, you could be captured into slavery. And we've all seen that movie, 12 Years a Slave, which is about a New York, Saratoga, African-American who was captured into slavery. So you really were restricted from day one. And that restriction is controlled by police officers. The very first police departments in this country are formed as slave catchers. And that is a very telling circumstance because we can start to see how restrictions on black movement still exist today. And so The slave catchers were out there looking for black people, checking passes, making sure that even free blacks were not gathering at night because whites were so afraid of insurrection that they didn't allow African-Americans to gather. You had police policing black movement. And in the West, they were policing the movement of Native Americans or immigrants. So when we think about the relationship that the police have Today, with African-Americans, with immigrant groups, with Native Americans, we realize a lot of this comes out of the origin of policing in this country, which was to control the movement of people of color. Absolutely. And it didn't end with the end of slavery. That restriction on movement, those slave slave patrols turned into, well, continued on into restriction of Black movement. Absolutely. And those slave patrols were legal. They were the legal entities that were designed to control Black movement. But then when you get into the Jim Crow period, you have extra legal behavior, right? You have groups like the Klan 
and the white citizens councils controlling black movement and kind of, quote unquote, protecting white supremacy in this country. But you also have those groups in league with the police. So, for example, when Goodman, Schwerner and Cheney, white and black civil rights workers were released from jail, they had been arrested, they were released at midnight, they were followed by the police and the Klan, and they were murdered. Now you have this collaboration between the police and the Klan to control black movement. So now we have extra legal, not legal control of black movement. But again, this is to reinforce white supremacy. So you can kind of see how the relationship between the police and African-Americans has always been fraught with danger and with this mistrust. Your book makes that very clear. And then another thing, there was danger and it was also just when it came to public transportation. You talk a lot about humiliation that Black people faced when they tried to move. I guess that's closer to the automobile, but still there was this other layer of like humiliation that they also had to face when they tried to move around. Yeah, as dangerous as it was to go out on the road with your car, African-Americans love their automobiles because they didn't have to take public transportation. They didn't have to take buses that were segregated. They didn't have to take their children on trains and sit in the Negro car that was filthy. It was rarely clean. The bathrooms were filthy. And it was humiliating to say, you have to go to the Negro car or you have to sit in the back of the bus. And how does that make your child feel when you're raising children to know that they are second-class citizens. But often bus drivers would hurl epithets at their black riders. Sometimes a black rider would have to get on in the front of the bus, pay their money, and they'd have to get off the bus and go into the back door. And sometimes after they'd pay their money, bus driver would pull away and just leave them. So bus drivers could be incredibly cruel. Many of them were armed. They carried guns. There are instances of bus drivers shooting black riders. There were instances of black and white people who were friends saying, no, 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 it's okay. We want to sit together. And the bus driver saying, no, you can't sit together on my bus. The black person has to go sit in the back. Even there was an instance of, of even two soldiers who were World War II soldiers. This is two people fighting for the country who were one black, one white, and they were sitting together on a bus. And the bus driver shot at them because they were sitting together. So not only was it humiliating, but it could be dangerous. And people would say horrible things to black people on buses. And if more white people got on and black people were sitting in the back and white people needed seats, the black people had to stand. So that kind of humiliation and horrible treatment on public transportation made black people want to have their own cars. And so by hook or by crook, black people bought their own cars when they could. It makes so much sense when it was dangerous to really do anything else. And it was a lot harder to regulate Black movement in cars. So, for example, when people were leaving for the Great Migration, so many people, because of the Chicago Defender, learned about jobs in the North and they wanted to get out of the South. But there was a move to prevent them from leaving the South because this was the South's labor force. And the South wanted to make sure that they stayed and worked those cotton fields. So... In order to keep them there, the bus stations were often patrolled. The train stations were often patrolled. But if you knew somebody, say, up in Chicago or in New York or in Philadelphia that had a car, a relative that could come and get you, you could tie all your personal possessions to that car at night and leave. And that's what a lot of African-Americans did during the Great Migration. Yeah, 
after such a history of having so much of their movement restricted, there was just so much new freedom to having cars. But your book also like very quickly points out that there were also lots of new dangers, which one of the most interesting parts of your book for me was when you talked about Black people very specifically most often chose large, expensive cars and not because they were expensive. The reason is mostly because of safety. Yes. A large car was heavy and it was hard to turn over. You know, if you ran into an angry mob, you couldn't turn that car over so easily. A big, heavy Buick, those were preferred. They also perceived of Buicks as reliable. It wasn't going to strand you someplace without access to a mechanic or a garage that could fix your car. One of the best stories that I collected was from Lonnie Bunch, who's the secretary of the Smithsonian now. And Lonnie said that he and his father were driving somewhere in Virginia, I think, and they got stranded because the car died on them and they were in a white neighborhood and the police immediately came, completely surrounded them. And he said they were terrified, but the police were not interested in helping them get their car fixed. They just wanted them to get out of that white neighborhood. So getting stranded in a white neighborhood could be very dangerous. And so you wanted to make sure your car was reliable You wanted to make sure your car was large enough to carry everything you needed to carry. Because when African-Americans traveled, they carried stuff. They carried blankets and pillows in case they had to sleep in the car. They carried a big cooler full of food, sometimes a couple of days worth of food in case you had to stop along the road and stay along the road someplace. They carried, can you imagine this, extra gasoline. People would carry a gallon or two of gasoline in case they couldn't stop at a gas station. We think of that as a very dangerous thing to do now, but it was more dangerous to get stuck without place to buy gas. Uh, You might carry extra water for the radiator. You carried a lot of gear. And keep in mind, you also were carrying your suitcases or your clothing or things that you needed on vacation or if you were going to visit relatives. So large cars with a big trunk were really desirable. And I think the other reason African-Americans bought large cars was because they could afford them because often black neighborhoods were redlined. And if your neighborhood was redlined, you couldn't get a mortgage to buy a house. So since you couldn't buy a house, your next largest family purchase would be your family car. So you had more money to put into that car because you were not allowed to buy a house. That's just so incredible to think that black people were thinking about outrunning and withstanding white mobs and packing enough supplies that if they encountered segregation on the road, they could just keep driving was what they were thinking about when they were buying cars. But while this was happening, white Americans were not huge fans of seeing black people in big, expensive cars. Right. There was this feeling that you were buying a car that was beyond your station in life. And also, white people didn't like it when a black person had a car better than their car. And they might key your car or scratch your car or they might steal your car or do something to damage your car or damage you. In some Southern communities, this happened a lot. So you were taking a chance if you bought a really nice car, especially in the South. I think it was interesting that I read a lot of biographies of entertainers, you know, Mahalia Jackson and Dinah Washington and Sammy Davis Jr. And every one of them bought a nice car, like a Cadillac. And I think it was Sammy Davis Jr. in his biography defends buying a Cadillac three or four times. Why should he have to defend the fact that he bought a Cadillac? He was a rich entertainer. He had the money. He had the 
position. He needed it. Mahalia Jackson talks about sleeping in her car. And after she would perform, she'd then have to get in the car and drive to the next gig because she couldn't stay in the hotel. So she needed that car. And yet she felt the need, as did Sammy Davis, to justify buying a Cadillac. And I thought that was so sad and interesting that there was this need to justify the car that they bought. You wouldn't find a white person buying Cadillac justifying it. Ooh, yeah. We just went through some of the dangers and kind of new discrimination that came out of being on the road for Black people, but there was so much more because just the simple fact of roads connecting the known to the unknown, whenever Black people got on the road, there was always a very large chance they ended up somewhere they didn't know, they didn't understand the politics of, and the unknown was a huge risk for them. And sometimes road signs would tell them where they were and were not welcome. Yes, one of the things, you know, I'm an exhibition curator, so I'm always, I was always looking at pictures. And what I noticed as I was looking at photographs was all of these signs that were really offensive. So if you were out driving on the highway, you don't see billboards like this now. You don't see huge billboards that say, welcome to Klan country. North Carolina, welcome to Klan country. Or you don't see signs for some of the food chains that existed. There was a, a chain on the West Coast called the Coon Chicken Inn. And this was a chain, like just like McDonald's, this is a chain of restaurants all up and down California and Utah that sold Coon Chicken. Places like that that you would encounter when you were traveling that really told you how people in that community perceived African Americans. And it was always in a negative light. And these were dangerous places to be. There were also sundown towns all over the United States. There were hundreds of sundown towns. And a sundown town is a place where you could drive through it. You could be in that town during the day. You could work in that town, but you couldn't be in that town after sundown. And you certainly couldn't live in that community. Not just talking about communities in the South. We're talking about all over the Midwest, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, Manitowoc, Wisconsin, Darien, Connecticut. These were all sundown towns, and there were hundreds of them. And if you were in the town after sundown, you might be hurt violently, definitely be run out of town. But you were also taking a chance that you could be killed. There's a great story that Thurgood Marshall tells when he says he was just standing on a train platform one afternoon before he was a Supreme Court justice when he was a lawyer for the NAACP. He's just waiting for the train and a, a white man with a gun comes up to him and says, boy, what are you doing here? And he says, well, I'm just waiting for the train to Shreveport. And the man says to him, well, you better be out of here. The next train comes at 4.30 and you better be on it because the sun has never set with a in this town. This is a man minding his own business in a suit, just waiting for the train to Shreveport. And this is how he was treated. So you even had whites who were willing to take on police powers and enforce these racist segregation laws, take it upon themselves to be vigilantes, basically. So it was very dangerous for African-Americans to ignore these laws or these customs. And, and actually, they were enforced by these communities. And one of, ooh, one of the parts, one of the really 
most terrifying parts of the book to me was that you mentioned there was a town in Illinois that until was it like 1998, they had a siren on top of their water tower that went off at 6 p.m. every day. That was absolutely amazing that they had a siren that that said you had to be out of this town. When that siren went off, you were black. Get out. Until 1998. Well, and you know, it had a it had that history. That was the reason for the siren. And they just kept doing it. It's kind of mind blowing. So we were just talking about how white people would take on a vigilante role to maintain white supremacy and whiteness in their communities. But there was also the danger of police on the road. There were lots of dangers with police and particularly when it came to having accidents. Yes. So the the whole car accident thing was something that actually shocked me. And I wasn't aware of it, but I started digging into it. And I realized that if you got into a car accident, that was the most dangerous situation for a black driver, because there were only about 200 black hospitals in the United States. And many of those black hospitals did not have trauma units. And many of them did not have accreditation. So if you happen to get injured in Newark, New Jersey, which had a black hospital, or somewhere near Meharry Medical School or Howard Medical School, you would be treated at a really good hospital. But if you were in the middle of a community where there was no black hospital and the white hospital wouldn't accept you, you could die just as a result of bleeding to death, even from treatable injuries. And there were many instances, many stories of people getting into car accidents, ambulances were also segregated. And so the first thing that the emergency operator would ask was, well, are the people black or white in the accident? And if the people were black, they had to send the black ambulance. Very often in this time period, in the 50s and 60s, ambulances in many parts of the country were actually operated by the funeral homes. And so if there was a funeral in progress, there was a vehicle called a combination coach, which converted from a hearse to an ambulance to a hearse to an ambulance. And if you were in a car accident and there was a funeral going on at the time, that vehicle was being used as a hearse and you couldn't necessarily get an ambulance. But always the white ambulance, if a car with black people was hit by a car with white people, the white ambulance came in first. And until the white people were taken out to the hospital, the black ambulance could not come in. And so that amount of time that you have to get to the hospital is being eaten up by just waiting for the white ambulance to take the white people away. So always whites were given preferential treatment. So race was always a factor in healthcare. And we can see just from how healthcare was distributed During this time period, we can see those disparities where white people receive preferential treatment. Black people might be taken to the hospital and the hospital would say, I'm sorry, we don't treat black people here. They then have to go to another hospital. I'm sorry, we don't treat black people here. Then they'd have to go to another hospital. And many people died along the way. And there were instances of especially sports teams that were traveling if there was a car accident There were many students who died from treatable injuries because of bleeding to death or failure to be treated by a white hospital. There were some historically black colleges that would not allow their athletes to travel because they were afraid that if they got into car accidents, they would not be treated and they would die. So one of the things I think about this story, Driving While Black, 
is that it's kind of a microcosm of all of African-American history. And a lot of it comes down to this idea about mobility and controlling black bodies. And it's not like all this stuff popped up and black people just took it. They figured out ways to get around these attempts to restrict their movement, particularly segregation in places along the roadside, which is where travel guides come in. There were so many of these travel guides, and I really didn't know it. There were so many of them. There were dozens and dozens of these travel guides, and you could find travel information in Black magazines. You could find it in Black newspapers, but there were also standalone travel guides like the Negro Motorist Green Book that provided you with lists and lists of places that you could stay, where you could buy gas, where you could get your hair done, where you could buy drugs if you needed a pharmacy. They were very specialized, some of them. Some of them were more for entertainers or people that were traveling because of business, people that wanted to go to nightclubs. There were specialized travel guides. But these were guides that kept you safe, that told you where you would be welcome and where you would find a friendly face. And many of them had display ads that had photographs of the proprietor. So you could say, oh, yeah, there's a black person there. I know that I'll be welcome. I know that they'll take good care of me. And what you could see is that African-Americans worked hard to go from safe black space, their home, to safe black space, a resort, a hotel, a restaurant, a place where they would feel welcome and where they could take their children and not feel humiliated. The problem was that you had to cross through white space in order to get to that black space. But there were places all over the country. There were black beaches, black resorts, and then there were a variety of kinds of accommodations. You could stay at a black motel. You could stay at a luxury hotel. One of my complaints about the movie, The Green Book, was that all of the places that they showed were kind of dumpy. And that's not the case at all. There were luxurious black hotels in different parts of the country, in the cities, in New York, in Chicago, in Miami, in L.A. There were beautiful luxury hotels. There were also kind of tourist homes like Rock Rest, which was in Kittery, Maine, which was really the precursor to the bed and breakfast. You could stay there for a week and go to the beach every day and the segregated beach, of course, and they would provide you with breakfast and dinner or they would pack you a lunch. And people not only traveled there when they were vacationing, but when you were taking your kids to college, you might need a place to stay as well if you were taking your kids to a college that was a long distance away. And you can imagine what it must have been like because people in those days wrote letters to make their reservations. You wrote to a place and said, do you have a room or two rooms for this date in September? So you made plans way in advance and you stuck to those plans. You knew, you planned out your entire vacation your or your entire trip and you wrote letters to make your reservations And you stuck to those plans so that you knew I'm going from here to here and then I'm stopping for the night and then I'm going from here to here and I'm stopping for the night. So everything was very well planned out. The guidebooks enabled you to make those plans. So if you wanted to go to the national parks, you wanted to go to California, you wanted to travel across the country, you planned it out with a map and with your guidebook. And then you had your food with you. You had your blankets and pillows in case there was a a mishap. You had an extra can of gasoline or extra water for your radiator. Once the highway system was built and started to be built in the 50s, you stuck to the highway. Then you didn't have to go through all those small towns that 
were sketchy. You didn't know if you'd be welcome in this town or that town. Stop at the gas station, if you could stop at the little store to get some snacks. So you planned it out and knew exactly where you were going to go and where you were going to stay. And then these travel guys were super helpful. Instead of having to spend like weeks calling all your relatives that you know everywhere to see where there might be a safe place to stay, you had a guidebook. And on guidebooks, there's a chapter on like guidebooks in general. And then there's one specifically about the Green Book, which became the most well-known, the biggest one. I want to talk about what about the Green Book made it so popular? Well, I think there were a couple of things. The first one was that Victor Green had agents all over the United States. And those agents helped him find places that were welcoming to African-Americans. So people knew if I go to Wyoming or if I go to California, these are the places that I can stay. So he had these agents that were helping him scope out the places. Several of them came from the colleges that had singing groups, the Cotton Blossom Singers or the Fisk Singers. And those people knew the places around the country where you could stay because they had to place those singers. So the agents was one thing that really helped the Green Book. But I think the thing that helped him the most was he created a collaboration with Standard Oil. Standard Oil was owned by the Rockefeller family. They have a long history of engagement with civil rights and with black issues. They were very sympathetic to the black freedom struggle. And they collaborated with Victor Green. They bought thousands of copies of the Green Book. They distributed copies of the Green Book at their Esso gas stations. And I think very importantly, they allowed Black people to use their bathrooms, use the bathrooms at their gas stations. Other gas stations would not do that. And so Black people flocked to Esso gas stations. And you could get a copy of the Green Book at an Esso gas station. So I think that collaboration really gave Green incredible reach across the country. His Green Book was distributed all over the United States, and it really helped him to keep his business going for a long time. It was published from 1936 to 1966. And something else super interesting is the fact towards the end, in the 60s, it even went international. The Green Book was all about promoting Black people leaving America and exploring the rest of the world. And it even had guides to places in Europe, in Africa, in Canada. Yes. And there were a lot of articles in the 60s about whether or not it was more comfortable for Black people to travel internationally than it was to travel in the United States. There are lots of people that write about going to Europe and not being followed by the police or having police actually be friendly to them. One article that's called See America First If You Can, because it was written by someone who's actually traveled abroad and found a more welcoming environment in European cities than in the United States. So African-Americans were traveling abroad. They were going to Africa. They were going to Europe and South America. That's so cool. Now, after the Green Book section, you talk about the rise and the fall of the Black businesses that cater to Black travelers. So I guess let's start with the rise, because some of the first places people stayed were just in women's houses. They opened up their extra room and took care of people. Yes. Here's entrepreneurship at its best. When we talk about the bed and breakfast, these are the women that started the bed and breakfasts. These are women that said, you know, I have an extra room in my house. Travelers need a space to stay. I'll open up my home. And so many of the 
listings in the Green Book and in other travel guides were Mrs. John Smith, as they used to refer to women by their husband's names, Mrs. John Smith's boarding house. Mrs. John Smith has got two rooms and she's going to rent them out to travelers and provide you with a big hearty breakfast. So this is really the early bed and breakfast and quite amazing. All of a sudden you have this kind of flurry, this proliferation of bed and breakfasts, of tourist homes and guest houses, and then motels and hotels, businesses all over the United States in black communities that are serving the black traveling public, as well as black people that lived in those communities. But what happens is in the 1960s, we have urban renewal, also known as Negro removal, and a lot of downtown black neighborhoods are destroyed because it's the path of least resistance. These are the people with the least political power to stop highways from going through their neighborhoods. And urban renewal destroys a lot of black neighborhoods. And then highway construction destroys a lot of black neighborhoods. So you have, at the same time, civil rights legislation that's opening up the large chain hotels like Hilton and Howard Johnson's to black people. So the black businesses are losing business to the opening of these national chains, kind of the downside. Yeah, it's a great show. You're like, yay, everyone can go wherever they want. But also, it did a lot of harm to Black businesses. One of the things you point out is even because these Black businesses were only ever patronized by Black people, integration never went the other way where like white people would go to Black businesses. A lot of them just disappeared. I think that's really important because it's not that Black people abandoned all the Black businesses. It's that the black businesses were marginal enough because the black communities are pretty small, given the percentage of us in the population. It's just that white people never embrace these businesses, it seems, until this year, when a lot of black businesses, and I think that's great, are being embraced. Whites are saying, well, you know, let's look at black businesses. Let's use black businesses, which is terrific. But in this time, in the 60s, People were not saying, oh, I'm going to use these black businesses. And so they just went out of business because they just didn't have enough business, as well as a lot of them being bulldozed. If you are operating a restaurant or a hotel and now it's right next to the highway or it's been bulldozed for the highway, you don't have any recourse. You don't have any place to go. Ooh, the unintended consequences. Oh, we didn't. I kind of forgot about <laughs> How important the automobile and the Green Book were to the civil rights movement? I think nobody had really thought about civil rights in the automobile and how you could not have had the modern civil rights struggle without the automobile. Couldn't have done it because during boycotts, people had to get to work or they would be fired. That was the way that employers tried to prevent the civil rights movement from happening. You would be fired from your job. So especially for all the women who worked as domestic servants, they needed to get to work or cooks. So basically cars drove them to work. During the Montgomery bus boycott, they bought a fleet of cars and they used those cars to drive people to work so that they could boycott the buses. That enabled them to bankrupt the bus company. Perfect. You had to have an automobile. Because the cabs were segregated, you couldn't get a cab from the airport. So if Martin Luther King or any civil rights worker flew into a city, a southern city, you could not get a cab from the airport because only the white cab companies went to the airports. That meant 
that you had to rent a car. This is the early days of car rentals, but that was the only way to get to your black hotel was to rent a car. So car rentals were essential to the civil rights movement. And then we know that you had to have, if you're registering voters, if you're taking health care to rural communities, if you're teaching people how to pass the poll test, any of those things you needed to get out in a car to drive around the county or drive around the state. You had to have a car. You couldn't go on foot to register voters in an entire county or an entire state. You really had to have a car. And there were people that had these vehicles and they would take these vehicles out and they would use them to go house to house throughout an entire county registering voters. They brought vaccines and health care to people. They taught people how to read and they were doing it with cars. The NAACP had field secretaries and those field secretaries went out and they investigated lynchings and they investigated church burnings and they investigated black people who were missing. And in order to do that, you had to have a car. So the automobile is a tool and it was a tool for civil rights that for the modern civil rights struggle, you really needed that because you had to reach out to people where they live and the automobile enabled you to do that. This whole story of Black people in cars, we've seen a lot of through lines to the present. And as we wrap up, I want to look to what this history means for the present moment. This is a history that is still unfolding. And we can see in this story how that relationship between African-Americans and the police is still fraught with danger. And... I think this kind of helps us to understand how what happened to George Floyd happened or what happened to Philando Castile happened or dozens of other African-American people who had a confrontation with the police. It helps us to understand the culture that created these dangerous situations for African-Americans on the road. And I think it helps us to see the need for reform and that the Black freedom struggle is still with us, and that we need to continue that freedom struggle. And I think it's important for modern, young African Americans to know this story and to understand this background, because it not only motivates us to keep going, but it it really helps us to understand how we got to the point that we're at right now. It really does, because so many of police shootings nowadays do stem from just like a traffic stop that suddenly turns deadly. And it's not, that's not new. The danger of driving while Black is not unique to this time. It is a long history that needs to be addressed in order to move past it. Exactly. It's a long history, a long culture, and it's still with us. I think for me, it was really, here's an example of what systemic means. You know, when people say there's no systemic racism, this is an example of how systemic racism has affected the present. And you can really see the connections going all the way back to slavery. Yes, you really do. Thank you so much for coming on my show. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. And with that, I want to say safe travels this summer, everyone. Check out Driving While Black. It's both a book and a PBS documentary. And if you support this show, keep spreading the word about it. Like it on Facebook or Instagram at We The Black People Pod. And definitely follow it on whatever podcasting platform you're using right now. All power to all people, y'all.